Welcome to episode 28 of Gameology. We're talking about Gaming Crunch. My name is Matthew Falve. I'm one of your hosts. And I am Attila Gabriel Brunitsky of Bluish Green Productions. Gaming Crunch. This is a big deal in the industry. This is an industry where people are regularly demanded and are required to to work excessive hours, mm-hmm. um, especially working for bigger companies. Be, and it's just become sort of a... It's become so regular that they have a name for it, and it is crunch. And because the gaming industry doesn't I mean, have a union, crunch isn't exclusive to like, the concept of crunching on a project. It's not exclusive to games by any means. That's true. That's true. I mean, you see it a lot in uh, in the film industry. Mm-hmm. It's it's tends to be, I think, more of a North American construct. I remember watching a documentary on uh, aliens, and they were saying it was had a huge problem trying to film over in England, where. If you spent four or ten hours setting up a foggy shot and the lighting was just perfect and you needed to film, if the tea lady came, the whole crew would just stop working in England because they, they didn't care. Their jobs were guaranteed. They worked at the same place their dad did. Whereas in North America, if you only have this time to get the shot, you're going to do it and everybody's just going to sacrifice. But that can be a big problem. I mean, you hear stories of people losing their marriages, yeah. not seeing their kids because they had to get Uncharted out. And if we didn't have that, would that game not exist? A great story I heard is that the Polish developers for The Witcher won the, I think it was Witcher 1, they tried to get uh, an external studio to port it over to console, and they sent it over to a French studio. And they didn't check off the, up on them too much, and when they went over, they found that the French studio, their idea of work was a lot different and they were taking you know four or five espresso breaks a day they were clocking off early and showing up later than what the polish guys were doing and the whole the whole project got canceled and millions of dollars were lost and that's why you don't see witcher one i think on the console yeah it's just it's one of those things where um the concept of like putting in the extra time um to be like working on something you're passionate about in and of itself that's not a bad thing. No. Um, the idea that, you know, if if you get familiar with a project and you can work a little bit more on it, um, burn some of the midnight oil to really make something shine and if that's your own personal investment, that's great. But the second that that starts to become an expectation or the norm, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's a huge problem. But then, I mean, you're on the indie side of things, so you're in control of when you're going to burn that midnight oil unless you have different deadlines that come into play. But when you're working for a big corporation, I mean, we can look at the movie um, Sausage Party, which made a lot of money mm. and cost a very small amount of money for an animated movie, about $14 million, raked in about $100, $100 million plus. But there are stories alleging that the animators were demanded to work crazy long hours without compensation and were threatened to be fired and terminated. And now there's a big lawsuit going on with that. I mean, if you want to talk about, like... Crunch before gaming, um, before the concept got so heavily associated with the gaming industry. I mean, animators can end up working terrible, like not even like professional animators. I'm talking about students. Um, in like, I, I remember when I was uh, visiting Sheridan, um, and I was being led around a, a tour of, I think it's called like, Sheridan University now, or something like that. Um, now the 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 animation program there was so so competitive like ridiculously competitive um to the point where uh people in their final year were like living out of the essentially cubicle space that they had allotted to them at the school eating jars of peanut butter 
as their like primary food source. They would sleep there just to make sure that they could spend as much time animating as possible. And is that because of the competition where if you're not willing to do this, there's someone else that's willing to take your place? Yeah, basically. And it's just, it's such a ridiculously competitive field. Um, And I think that most people just end up burning themselves out on it. That it's, you know, it, it, you, you have this um, feeling with a lot of the creative fields, right? That like, if, it's, it's something that people want to do. People want to work creative jobs. Um, and if you're, if you, if you really mean it, then you'll put your all into this. And the reality of the situation is, uh, I think in a lot of these creative fields, people end up working harder than people in like the blue collar or white collar jobs, because they feel like if they don't put in 200, 200%, um, that they're going to get replaced. And it's a yeah. legitimate fear in certain um, places. It's well-founded because they are going to be let go and then someone else is going to be hired who's going to work um, even harder for less pay. Yeah, because with a game, you can't... Or a creative endeavor, it's not just about showing up and turning your brain off and and, and shoveling code into a game. I mean, there are instances where probably you might need to do a bit of a dump here and there, but... It, it really relies on you being engaged with it mm-hmm. at all times in creating that. But if the if the supply of willing people to do this job is super high, then you have to be able to put out so much more and you're at the you're at the mercy where people say, Well, if you this is your dream job. Mm-hmm. So do you want to do this? When I was running, you know, musical promotion and running shows, I was doing three three or four people's jobs and I'd be working I would not want to break down my hourly what I was making per hour because, but I didn't have to, because when Mm. you're doing that or if you're making a game and that's your passion or making music, you're obviously a lot, you're not watching the clock going like, Oh my God, I still have to keep coding this for five more hours. You're, you're kind of getting lost in, and that goes hand in hand. It's that people are doing it because they want to, if you were working at a restaurant and there were many other restaurant jobs and not a lot of people that wanted to do it, they have to kowtow to towards the employee in Mm -hmm. that respect. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where like the the more people who want to do this job, the more uh, ability that the employer has to just get a high turnover rate, um, and they'll try to keep people on to a project as long as possible because having turnover in the middle of a project is not a good thing, um, just for obvious reasons in terms of people not being familiar with the workflow of a particular um, studio. Um, or the pipeline asset pipeline of a particular project. Or the coding um, or the engine. That's what I mean. Like all, yeah. all that's part of it where you don't want to have to retrain somebody on that consistently. So they'll keep you on with these archaic hours and sometimes it's just they'll be let go anyway because um, never mind the sort of like the, the pressure that these employers will put on to the employees they already have. A lot of game development studios... Um, it just happens that at the beginning of a project, there's not a lot of work to be done. So um, as the project gets going and builds up steam and there's a lot more work that needs to be done on it, they'll hire on a whole bunch of people who are just temporary. And then when the project ships, then all those people are going to be laid off because there's not as much work to be done. Like only the core team needs to be there to get the next game going. Yes, you have to have a situation of independent contractors and a pool and the idea that if you have this much amount of work to get done instead of asking one person to work 12 hours 
or 16 hours mm-hmm. in a day. Hire it so that you had two people that are doing eight hours work. And it has to be this, this, you're bringing people in for a certain amount of time. They're leaving. They're going on to the next project. But it's, how do we improve the conditions for game developers that are in this? Is it lowering the expectation where games can take longer to come out? Is it increasing the price of games? Is DLC the answer? Is it is it accepting that a game doesn't have to have everything? I mean, we see a lot of developers that are terrified to not have a not have a say a game like The Order, AAA, expensive, looks great, but people were complaining that it was too short and it ended up being very shallow. And people pissed all over it, and that's that'll be the knee-jerk reaction to that game. But does a game like Uncharted need multiplayer? If they ditch the multiplayer aspect, could that game have come out? Could that improve people's lives? Does a game like Rainbow Six Siege need single player? Doesn't really, and it doesn't have it. Was that the ability to make the game cost less or help people out? It's a comp- It's also free market, so you're competing against other games, other franchises. If someone is going to beat you to the punch, if it's Overwatch versus Battleborn, if Battleborn got out six months before Overwatch. Would that have completely changed their success rate in that game? It's difficult to tell because a lot of the time it's actually the publisher making most of these decisions about like your game must have X in it because X is real popular right now. And it ends up having like a lot of these um, game development studios have to like completely shift gears and like, oh man, how do we include this in the game? Because, you know, our core experience was x and now they're asking us to add in y and x and y do not play nicely with the code base that we've written it was never meant to be a multiplayer game but you want us to add competitive multiplayer and then you just get a whole bunch of people working long hours to add in something that is probably not going to be received well and it's going to make people cut corners where they shouldn't have um it's it's detrimental all around yeah, it's that publisher-developer relationship. It's very similar to in a restaurant when you have the usually the money person has never washed a dish in their life. They haven't they haven't raised up, and if they're not willing to, if if a publisher is not willing to tell a developer we trust you, do this, then they might they might push for things that don't really make a lot of sense and are going to hurt them in the long run. But this is a free market. Publishers are in this to make money, and they're going to try to make they're going to make a game in an efficient way and they're going to try to release a game that is all about making money. I mean, I just read an interview with uh, Shigeru Miyamoto in Glixel and he was talking about how he's interested in a game selling well. Mm-hmm. And although he he said he's not worried about what other people are going to find fun, he worries about what he finds fun. He still is always thinking about, is a game going to sell well? And that's Miyamoto, yeah. the guy who is not going to be worried about his position in the gaming industry, or maybe he is. Maybe people have have threatened him and said, you're getting older and maybe we'll push you out if uh, if we don't have sales. I mean, anytime, Nintendo's a publicly traded company. Anytime yeah. you're a publicly traded company, you're also answering to um, shareholders as mm-hmm. well. So it's it, it just comes down to money yeah. and, and what makes it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's fundamentally any industry, uh, be it the film industry, the gaming industry, like it's... It is all about um, the publisher's expected return on investment, right? So unless you have indie developers who are willing to work like countless hours on their own, um, or you have a sort of middle situation where, you know, when I did the Kickstarter campaign, I was making sure to release the game to backers, but that I was able to just continuously push back the release date to a couple more, um, about half a year after the initial expected launch date because we lost a bunch of potential funding from OUYA, a bunch of circumstances that 
We, we took the time that we felt was necessary to make the game as good as it could be for launch. And unless you have like gaming experiences being created by these people for whom it really is a labor of love and they don't feel rushed, I mean, having no milestones is difficult and it, a lot of people will fail to deliver a product under those circumstances. Um, because they just get stuck in the situation of constantly wanting to refine things. Um, you always will have to find a level of what is good enough, and that's what has to go out the door. Um, and it's, it doesn't feel great. It feels like you see these flaws in your product that you know are there, but actually most of the time other people don't even see them. Like, of course, if you're the one to draw an illustration, you know the one place where your pencil snapped and there's something, a, a tiny mark in the illustration somewhere that you could never get rid of. But somebody beholding the piece, they don't even notice that tiny little speck. But God, does it drive you crazy if they do. Well, it's like looking at a picture of yourself. You know, you've stared at your face so often that you can see where the problems are. Um, or if you're in a group photo, you know, how many times you hear people say like, I don't like the way I look in this one. Mm. But I mean, that's on the indie side of things where, I mean, there's very small cases where an indie game comes out and it's a huge hit and mm -hmm. that's it. They're set for life. And that five years the guy spent making Stardew Valley is all worth it because it paid off in the end. But that's yeah. few and far between. And a lot of indie devs end up doing side jobs or full-time yeah, jobs. Time job. Or um, they do a lot of contract work for other companies, mm -hmm. you know, making assets. I talked to a development team and they're actually one of them did the visuals for Robo's World Zarnock Fortress. Yeah. And their business model is one guy works on the game that they would like to make and the other guy contracts out. Yeah. And they basically work as a married couple supporting this business together. <laughs> They're not married, God. but I mean, that's the partnership, right? Is we're going to, we're just going to combine the income into this and to survive. Mm -hmm. And actually to your point about Stardew Valley, the developer was saying he he did everything himself, but yeah. he had to learn a lot of it. And that meant that eight months later, he would go, oh, I could redraw all of this much better. Mm -hmm. I could make the music way better. And that mm -hmm. made the game take five years. I'm sure his next game might take one or two. No, because you it, it's, you just keep on getting better and you keep on improving and you keep on finding the things that mm -hmm. unless you set the bar and say like, I drew this tree and this tree looks good enough and I'm done with it. And, you know, if people say that tree doesn't look as good, it's like you just got to, you know, move on. Yeah, you need to. It's like a painting where you have a focal point and then you have a bunch of things that are in the background and they're not something that is designed to be looked at. It's like textures in a video game. If it's they don't have to look perfect, if that's not the focal point of what somebody is looking at and finding that level, I think is, is a lot, probably a lot tougher as an indie developer. Because you have maybe an open, you might have a personal goal, but I don't think I've ever talked to an indie developer who said, yeah, we thought it was going to take a year. It took way less time. <laughs> it's always, well, we wanted it out last year and here we are still working on it. And maybe that's because of feature creep. Look at Star Citizen. Mm -hmm. Probably the worst example of how to use Kickstarter, where a lot of people bought into it. Mm -hmm. And instead of just making the same game they promised. It's like if you go to a hot dog guy in the street selling out of a cart and a million people buy his hot dogs, it's still the same hot dog. Exactly. It doesn't have to be a hot dog that can transport space and time. But all of a sudden, Star Citizen has to 
blow up and blow up and all these people are left just wanting to play this damn game and now the expectations are raised mm-hmm. and I think we're all really interested in seeing how this plays out, whether that game can deliver on time. Yeah, I mean, I think that at this point that um, the sort time, of the, the, well. the, the self-funded, self-funded side of things, I mean, um, you know, even even games that are being made by industry veterans that have been funded on Kickstarter are subject to the exact same um, issues of delays. You know, Mighty Number no. 9 had this whole thing of like it was delayed and delayed and delayed. And I don't even know what people's expectations were for the game after all the numerous delays, but um, their base, their main issue was the fact that they promised simultaneous, or not, I don't know if they promised simultaneous release on every single platform, but that's what they ended up going for. And it meant that if the game failed certification on one platform, um, no surprise as to why if the game keeps crashing constantly, like literally blue screening your computer. Um, so if the game fails certification on one platform, then you need to resubmit. And if every other version of the game is done, but you can't release it because you're going for a simultaneous release, um, and that is probably because of like developer negotiations. Like they said that, you know, you, they probably signed contracts for all of those um platforms saying that like no of course we're going to do a simultaneous release we're not going to give your platform an edge over the others um and that's something that i haven't personally experienced i haven't released a game on console only on uh, steam so i don't have uh, i don't have that same sort of issue of like trying to make sure that different um versions of the game are on parity with each other um but after so much time you know people uh, who fund these Kickstarters start to feel the same entitlement as actual publishers. It was like, come on, just get it out the door already. Why aren't you? Absolutely. There's all these features you promised. Kickstarter is a way of you literally putting your money where your mouth is and experiencing like the role of the evil publisher saying like, you promised us this last year. Why isn't it out? Mm -hmm. Whereas gamers who are just waiting for game to come out, I mean, they're very much more easy to say, ah, take your time. And that's the thing. Do games need to come out? In in do they need to take two years or one year or three years? I mean, we see Ubisoft is now stepping away from that with mm-hmm. Assassin's Creed. Call of Duty still comes out every year. Sports games come out every year. I mean, the sports games and these wrestling games are just such minor iterations that they even have to take a step back when they pop up to a new console. I mean, it, even um, even in the Call of Duty games, there are at least three different developers working on it now in a yeah. three-year cycle each. Because it right. wasn't it wasn't feasible to continue putting out a new game every two years. But you can still see, I mean, a lot of games can take two years, three years, but a game even of the magnitude of, say, Call of Duty Infinite Warfare, yeah. where you have one studio that is allowed, I don't know, two or three years to work mm-hmm. on it, you can see where it looks great. There's a mm-hmm. lot of great set pieces, but there's still a few elements that feel kind of half-baked in mm-hmm. the story way where oh, I'm, yeah. I'm playing through and I go, man, I would love to know a little bit more about this villain or why instead of them just being evil and they just seem like they were born jerks and maybe if they had four years, five years, a little bit of extra time. We are at a time where there is no shortage of games. Mm-hmm. Games are coming at us from everywhere. You can't play everything. There right. was a time when you could and now it's like, yeah, you know, if my favorite game is going to take six years to come out, sure, I'll play The Witcher until then. I mean, I guess it's it's really one of those things where, like, in a almost, like, self-harming, self-informing cycle, um, publishers are seeing this kind of landscape of, like, all these different games coming out, and they're saying, like, we need to put all these different features into our game to make sure that it stands out. It's like, but if you just invested in making an actually good game and focusing on your core experience 
and letting the developers sort of go forward with their original vision, um, they're, they're far more likely to create a polished and cohesive experience. And, you know, it got to, like, was it last Christmas or the year before where just nothing worked on release? Yeah. Like, there were Especially a rash of games well. that, yeah, just, like, nothing worked. It was the year that The Witcher 3 came out, where The Witcher 3 was a standout game and that it actually worked. Yeah. That nothing else, that no other AAA game on PC worked the, that yeah, year. Yeah, this was kind of also along the time where console publishers and developers realized they could send a game to gold but then immediately start working on day one patch yeah ship the game and then assume there's going to be problems mm-hmm. and keep working on it and you've kind of pushed this development back where people that buy the game day one are now almost beta testers in a way yeah it's it's a, a weird mentality where like you think about like when a cartridge goes gold that's kind that's it you know, you don't, it, I have like Game Boy Advance games where like, I'm going to pop in those cartridges and they've better work because that is the physical embodiment of that game. And I can't ha- apply any like updates to order or external information. And those games had to be perfect. And I, I really wonder now that the Switch has adopted uh, cartridges, you know, the 3DS saw the advent of like updates coming to cartridge-based games. Whereas like if I try to play these games as they originally released, I might encounter some um, terrible bug where Nintendo used to like have half a year's worth of Q&A on a game, which was remarkable. And that's why so many of their games were so polished. And not to say that they didn't have game, um, like ridiculous glitches or whatever, but they were glitches that you had to like really push and exploit the behavior of the game to like tease these ridiculous things out where you can like hop into the know debug editor in super mario world or walk through walls and like legend of zelda or all these kind of ridiculous edge cases because mm-hmm. uh, i'd love to share an experience about like how game state variables ruin everything at some point but it's you know the the, the level of quality that we have on games i mean it's it's definitely one of those things where the idea of like rushing a game out the door is now not as detrimental as it used to be, but it does have an impact on people who are experiencing it early. Yeah, and gamers need to vote with their wallet Mm -hmm. in terms that it will... um, The majority of game sales are all made within the first week. That's where it peaks, and then it dips into week two, and then after that, it's almost non-existent. For most big cases, indie developers might find success later on because they can hit later on. I can always hope. For sure. Um, But it's... So if if gamers just stop pre-ordering and stop buying these games until they are sure that it's good, then you're going to see publishers probably change their methods. But if if you're able to float a game and spend six months on Q&A and refine the game here and there, you enter um, a reason why The Simpsons is so good or has been really great, is that they take a really long time to animate that, and they are able to refine that show and cut jokes down and and just like shave off seconds here and there and make it as good as it possibly can be because they have that time. So, I mean, to stop crunch, I guess it just comes down to time because to spend six months in Q&A, you are now floating all of those... Uh, at least the Q&A people mm-hmm. don't get paid a lot. So I guess that's fine. But in that sense, have you just let go of all your programmers, all your expensive people? I think the best method of uh, at least the, the way that larger studios can afford to do these things is that they can cycle multiple projects in a single studio. That seemed to be the best thing um, is that you you always have like 
um, two to three projects going in a studio, at least two in terms of the fact that like you have one game in pre-production while another one is wrapping up, or you have a very small portion of the team working on the next game. But that immediate that means that by the time that one game goes out the door, that next game is ready to uh, take on the bulk of that um, workforce and is ready to like give those people a, a landing pad for when when they're finished crunching on one game that they're they now have somewhere else to turn to so at least they're not losing their jobs after they've just you know burnt themselves out and you can keep the same people if they're really skilled people mm-hmm. that you've invested your time into not have to retrain people that work together you know as a good team that's that seems to be a good way to do it but i mean one possible solution that people have a lot to say about is do you have a union for these game developers Mm. to just say i can't work them over say eight hours a day or 10 hours a day or a certain amount of hours per week or month but in that case will publishers say fine we're not going to make any games in north america anymore we're going to go to poland we're going to go to ukraine and we're going to pay them in shiny shirts it's definitely a difficult question you know it's one of those things where like Unions, uh, you know, when I was a kid, struck me as this phenomenal thing. Like, everything should be unions. That would be great. Um, but then now I realize kind of working with kids, I hear them making suggestions like, we should put prisons in space and we should just ban cigarettes entirely. And it's like, you're making some ridiculously overreaching um claims because you don't understand the gravity of the situation that there are so many so much there's so much complexity and so many edge cases in the way that things work in a creative industry um i feel like you know if if games are expensive to produce now if we start implementing unions and all this kind of stuff not to say it's a bad idea not to say that it can't be done in a good way but it's going to make things much more difficult and the you know if the triple a industry is already in such a state of turmoil as it is um with games becoming so ridiculously expensive like the newest final fantasy game i think they find they think they said that like oh yeah it only has to sell as well as our best selling final fantasy game ever for us to make our money back to make their money back yeah of course, because you, you've had a massive team of, that's probably one of the most prestigious jobs in, in Japanese game development is working for Square Enix in Japan. Or yeah, 10, 10 years of a, the probably one of the biggest teams. That's well, That game probably had to cost $300 million or more. I have no idea. I, I mean, would be, if they said there. $600 million, I wouldn't yeah, be surprised. I, I really, I wouldn't be surprised. And it's just, when you're dealing with these astronomical sums and then you add on the idea of like, the 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 sort of unionized stuff where you you couldn't work more on a game if you wanted to like when i when i went back to the start of the episode when i was saying sometimes it's a passion project and people want to invest those extra hours unions would actively prevent those kinds of things from happening and i don't think you want that in a creative industry um you in 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 a creative space you are struck by inspiration sometimes you can like fly through 100 lines of code what do you care if it's 10 o'clock at night? You're you're feeling inspired. All the numbers just kind of clicked in your head and now is the time where you want to work. But you will actively be prevented from that and you can be forced out of a job because you're doing your job just because of the way some unions are set up to work. So it's not to say that we shouldn't be improving industry practices. Good Lord, no. Um, we, I, I would love to be working in an industry um where you know people are treated fairly everyone wants that kind of like good treatment no one wants to have their um their their time and effort um extorted in such a way but 
I don't know if unions are the answer or whether like something with a, a less like like unions are a very loaded term and there's a lot of stuff that comes along with the union which we don't necessarily want in a creative industry so I don't know if that's the solution or whether there needs to be some other like um basically like a charter of rights yeah yeah exactly what I was going for something along those lines where it's just like there's essentially a contract um, that, you know, everyone signs a contract when they go on to work on a project. Um, and well, not, I shouldn't say everybody, but most people are signing onto a contract when they're working in a creative job just because of the nature of the industry. So if that contract could um, include certain things, um, like as a contract worker, if you are guaranteed certain things, that's the way that the industry has to be. I feel like that's a good way of improving the work condition without introducing unions and all the things that they imply and i mean i like your option of it being uh, what you said about it being optional where if you're feeling the groove Mm -hmm. and you know you can get a lot of efficiency out of work in the next four hours but then if you make it optional you also introduce the problem of peer pressure Mm -hmm. by saying like hey everyone else in the team is going to be putting the option you can leave now if you like but feeling that pressure to perform it's, I mean, it's obviously a really tricky situation. It is. It, that's just, that, that, that becomes like a social issue at that point. And I don't, I don't know if it's necessarily something that we can legislate. I don't, um, like, the, I think the only reason that it becomes an issue of social pressure is because there is so much um, surrounding the, the current atmosphere of development that if better, like, um, circumstances were put into workplaces at this point, then some of those social pressures would start to work off, would, would start to wear off just because, you know, if you're in a studio that's crunching and you just say like, listen, guys, I'm at the end of my rope. I just got to go home right now. I know it's only 5 PM, but you know, a good nice rest will do me wonders and I'll be ready to make some real good quality work tomorrow. And people would be more okay with that if they weren't saying like, you know, they're, they're not stressing about so many um, like deadlines and other difficult milestones to reach. Deadlines, milestones, and budgets are mm-hmm. what seem to be the biggest problem. To me, it's, it's like the simplest solution, which is it's never going to be that simple. It just seems to be instead of asking some one person to do more hours is hire more people. But I mm. assume that you bring more people in that takes up more space that requires another computer that requires maybe the payment of benefits and it can be more expensive for the company in that case. But yeah, you know, in, in theory that all those costs are justified by making a truly good product and focusing your efforts to make something that really brings to life what your unique vision of a game is. So again, it would be great but I just, I, I don't know if this is necessarily a, a solution, a, a problem that can be um, tackled with any single solution, right? It's going to be uh, a number of different solutions. Different studios are going to have to deal with different uh, solutions, different like uh, North America, Europe, like uh, different regions are going to have different um, solutions to this problem. Well, there you have it. That was our episode on Gaming Crunch. My name is Matthew Falva. You can find me on Twitter at GameThinkTalk. You can find my work at a90skid.com and the A90skid YouTube channel. You can follow me on Twitter at BluishGreenPro, or you can check out my website at BluishGreenProductions.com. Bye for now.